He's like a bull in a china shop. He runs around, he runs into things, he just plays rough. I'm like, oh. Welcome to the Inspiro Podcast, a podcast exploring personal growth, leadership, strategy, communication, and fulfillment. We are your hosts, Jason Luchtefeld and Bill Woodburn. I'm here as a dentist transitioning into a career to help facilitate individuals and their organizations towards a more fulfilling future. Hi there, I'm Bill Woodburn and I'm a licensed professional counselor and licensed marriage and family therapist in Austin, Texas. I'm fascinated by the way people come together to solve problems, whether that's couples or families, dental practices or organizations. We're going to be exploring a lot of topics and for us to be able to be free to do that, I have to let you know that this is not intended to be dental advice or counseling advice. Um, let's move into physical self-care. If and we may. I hear you, you, you have an adventure coming up, which is <laughs> you, you must have cared for yourself a lot physically to be ready for that. I think I think some people would consider what I'm going to try to do tomorrow as uh, the opposite of self care, <laughs> but uh, it's all relative, right? Um, so, so when I think of physical, uh, to me, physical is what we do with our bodies, but there's also a nutritional component. And you might even be able to say this is kind of the easiest one to measure. You can go to and get blood work that will tell you physical things about yourself, blood pressure, cholesterol, (laughs) uh, glucose, hormone levels, all these things that have some physical manifestations at some point or can be impacted positively or negatively by how well you are taking care of yourself From a very basic standpoint, I think the most impactful thing we can do is regular movement. And what I've learned is sharing what I do is not all that helpful. Uh, Some people consider it on the extreme. Now what I tell people, physical care starts with a 10-minute walk every day. That's it. And that 10-minute walk, preferably done right after a meal, will have profound positive impacts on not only your physical health, your digestion, but also is going to help you emotionally and cognitively. Mm-hmm. So it overlaps in those other two areas. So that, that is a, a universal advice that anyone can do. And just involves moving for 10 minutes. Got a question. Sure. How aware of our physical well-being do you think most of us are? I mean, you were talking about blood tests and stuff, and I was thinking, yeah, that good hard data. But if I, when I'm sitting here, I think, well, my body's doing pretty good, but I don't know that it is. That's a good question. 
that I'm going to say half of the answer could be answered by modern medicine and the a description of health or the absence of disease. And as long as you have that, then you could say you're doing okay. Maybe you would even call that average. But then to go beyond that and talk about wellness or thriving or flourishing, now that's that's taken a step beyond and trying to elicit more out of your physical self than just existing without pain. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think one one good metric that is is going to start to gain some traction, I think, there was just a book came out that is called Outlive. It's by a physician, Peter Atia, that he's done research on nutrition, longevity, et cetera, et cetera. So he's really reinforcing the idea that we take a more visionary approach to our own self-care, especially physically. And he talks about putting a plan together for how you want to be able to perform in your marginal decade. The marginal decade is the last 10 years of your life. Mm-hmm. Now, how do you know when the last 10 years of your life is? Most people don't, right? I could be in it right now and I wouldn't know. And uh, we, so we have to use some like national statistics. So if we say the average age for a male in the United States is uh, at death is, I don't know, let's call it 80, then my marginal decade is going to start when I'm 70. Okay. Um, that, uh, assuming all else is equal. So then what I do is I work backwards from that with the things I want to be able to do between 70 and 80. So if I still want to climb a flight of stairs, if I want to be able to pick up a grandkid that weighs 30 pounds, if I want to be able to ride a bike to the grocery store, I can put all these metrics down that for me are a sign of wellness or things I'm going to need to do to take care of my physical self now to be able to do those things then. You know, it reminds me of that old joke that I have come to inhabit, which is if I known if I'd known I was going to live this long, I would have taken better care of myself. <laughs> right. Right. Well, it also uh, brings up that quote. Um, I don't. I don't know what it is exactly, but I. I don't want to go to the grave with a pristine uh, chassis. I want it to be torn up and tattered and on its last leg whenever it finally calls it quits. Something like yeah. that. Trying to think about that now is really valuable in allowing you to make intentional choices now to try to maximize what happens between now and then. But that requires this very difficult emotional uh, jujitsu for human beings. We don't like Mm -hmm. to imagine that there is an endpoint to our lives and then we're back to years. Or at least if, you know, well, maybe 80, you know, or maybe nine or maybe, I mean, something far enough away that we can, you know, keep it fuzzy. But, Part of dealing, I think, with improving your your physical uh, self care is is also dealing with your mortality and and your physical fallibility that things break that you're you're not the man of steel. 
Certainly not anymore, Bill. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, that that's a great point, and I think that that ends up being something that's also in your wheelhouse. It's how do we deal with that mortality issue and work back from that? And some people are more equipped than others to be able to accept that. And I think if the idea of of talking about your own death in the future is too traumatic, then I would suggest somebody talk to a professional, somebody make an appointment with you and talk about it in a safe way to allow you to plan your life in a, in a way that allows you to enjoy it, to thrive yeah. in it, not, not suffer through the imminent uh, demise that we're all in store for. And I think that we've, it, we've made it harder on ourselves. Um, when I was a little kid, I grew up in a, in a very small town, like under a thousand people. And so I knew people, my parents age, I knew people, my grandparents age, I knew, knew people that were even older than my grandparents. Oh my gosh. Um, but I, I got to see them. And, and these days it seems like, you know, you don't see anyone who is older, elderly that you get to hang out with and talk to until they're like an assisted living and you're going to visit them. Hmm. You only get the, you only get that sort of endpoint. You, you know, what about the, you know, what about the 70 year old guy down the street and you, you, you get a picture of 70 and what living well at 70 is, or maybe not so well at 70 is. And, and, and you get a sort of visceral sense of information about bodies and how they change and how they survive, but also how they break. And can, and then if you're 35, you, you, you can use that to make decisions mm-hmm. that if you, if you're 35 and the oldest person, you know, is maybe in their late forties, <laughs> you know, it, it, it looks like everyone lives forever. Yeah. Yeah. I guess that's great then that I, just a couple months ago, I got to witness a 60 plus year old guy walking around a lecture room, teaching people about EI. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Good plan. <laughs> Uh, so the other thing that comes into play when we're trying to plan this out is a concept called hyperbolic discounting that I want to bring up. So hyperbolic discounting is when we it's it's a a bias, a cognitive bias that we have that makes it incredibly incredibly difficult for us to determine the benefits that will exist in a long time frame away such that we are willing to sacrifice something now to get that. Mm-hmm. So it's it's sort of like the marshmallow test that people have probably heard about. You, you put a marshmallow in front mm-hmm. of a kid and say, if you don't eat that for the next 10 minutes and you can have two of them. And it's like half the kids gobble up the marshmallow, the other half don't, and they wait and they get their second one. And there's some sketchy research that shows the people that waited, um, end up doing better on like high school tests or something. I don't know. It's, it, I think it has been disproven at this point, but the but only if those high school tests involve marshmallows. That's right. <laughs> the, <laughs> the, but the concept of the hyperbolic discounting, I think is really valuable. It's, it's the same reason why, 
or it's part of the reason why people will take up bad habits thinking, oh, well, that, you know, smoking causes lung cancer, but that's only when you've been smoking for 50 years. Or, yeah, you know, I shouldn't eat that donut, but it's only one donut. And what impact is that going to have 20 years from now? And if I want to be able to ride my bike 100 miles when I'm 70 years old, and right now I can only ride one mile, well, I'm going to have a long way to go because the other thing that we don't realize is how much our physical body decreases in performance as we age, regardless of what we do. We can we can slow the rate of decline, but all we're doing is is we're it's still declining from the point that we're at. And that starts around 35 to 40 years old. We start declining at anywhere from one to four percent per year. And that percentage can be influenced, but you can't change it from a decline. <laughs> so knowing that <laughs> you're you're uh, losing muscle mass, you're um, losing cardiovascular fitness. That that to me becomes a really eye opening piece of this puzzle. It's, for, it's, it's, like yeah. a, it's like that old saying of you know, definition of health is dying at the slowest possible rate. Yes, but yes. you don't get to skip the dying part. That's right. That's right. <clears throat> All right. So physical, physical health. Um, we talked about a, a really basic, easy move, just move. Um, I want to talk about physical health in the role that we play roles that we play. So for me, this was really, this is one I could probably talk about for half a day. And that is our roles, physical role as a dentist. Mm-hmm. And this has come up a couple of times in our podcast, I think, but in dentistry, for everyone involved in dentistry, the dentist, the hygienist, the assistant, even the front desk, they're all in jobs that involve being in a static position that is not good for general health. And the solutions that are promoted to try to help people are simply to hold static positions in a different way. So, for example, if a dentist does not wear loops, so they're all direct vision, then you're leaned over, your neck is turned, you're putting stress at an odd angle on your back and your neck specifically. And so the solution that's really promoted is either a set of loops that allow you now to sit up but you still have these loops. And so oftentimes your neck is still bent. And so some people will go from having back pain to neck pain or a microscope. So now you've got this great vision. You've got this thing in the room sitting and you can just sit there and just look straight ahead. But guess what? Now you're still sitting stationary, even though you're straight. So now you might've taken the, the torquing stress off of the back, torso and neck, but now you're just sitting straight. So you have the same pressure on the lower lumbar spine. You have the same issue with hips as well as uh, shoulders and arms. And so most of the time, the pain just moves. And it might take time to move. You might have pain relief for a while, but it will come back. So my almost, antidote almost to that. Almost as though the body goes into this sort of 
more balanced middle ground and everything gets better before it heads out to the other extreme. Exactly. Yeah. So my antidote for that is to move more. You know, I, I realized some time ago that um, I had finally perfected so many things in my life that I could do them with the least amount of effort. <laughs> okay. And I, most of us have. Yeah. You know, I, I've, I've got it, things arranged in my home, in my office, my chairs, my computer, everything. It's the least amount of effort. And that was great when I was 40. But I'm not 40 anymore. And so I've actually started... Um, de-efficiency-izing my, uh, my life. Uh, I, I get down on the floor to pick things up. I just, I just don't bend with the fewest muscles. I use a lot more muscles than I technically need to. Uh, I, I keep things on the other side of my office. So I get up and go get them. Mm -hmm. And instead of seeing that as, well, that's terribly inconvenient. I see it as, yeah, but I, I, I get to move. Um, I, I get to to do things just by doing them in a less efficient way. That, that's a great point. And I think one of the, <clears throat> we could talk about uh, other metrics for physical health and longevity. One of them is being able to get off the floor. Mm -hmm. And can yep. you, how many points of contact do you require to get off of the floor? And the, the less the number so if you can get up on one point of contact, that would be a single leg squat from the ground, basically. It's incredibly difficult to do. But if you can, that is fantastic. I would say that's like a 10 out of 10. If it require four or five points of contact, meaning you're having to put all fours on the ground and then a hand up on a chair and, and crawl your way up, that's really bad. And so... You were talking about <laughs> hitting off the ground with points of contact. <laughs> My first thought was... How, how many can I get? Yeah, right. <laughs> exactly. So, uh, so that that's that's one. Um, another one is physical strength. So the more muscle mass we have, the better for because that is you're going to lose it. And so mm -hmm. if you have more to start with, then you have a bigger bowl that you can lose from to still have strength. Uh, another one is grip strength. There's actually research that indicates that uh, grip strength is an uh, associated factor and that probably relates to the things required to get good grip strength are also things that allow you to live longer. And then another is uh, cardiovascular fitness. And how are you at that? And there's a couple different ways that you can measure that and then improve that. But ultimately, that is about doing stuff. It's about challenging the system. What you're going to hear me say a lot, I got this from an author named Steve Magnus, is stress plus rest equals growth. So uh, most of the time, that is in the physical world. So in order to get more fit, to get stronger, whatever it may be, you have to stress the system. Then you have to rest it so that it can recover, and that equals an improvement or growth. I think we could apply the same thing to our emotions, to our cognitive world, and all these other factors that we're going to be talking to, actually. So stress plus rest equals growth. I want to add a piece, again, as the counselor here. So many of us were brought up to... to to think about or experience stress 
as a sign that something is wrong and mm -hmm. to greet it with anxiety so that part of eliminating physical stress or emotional stress is is that it's a sign that something is dangerous something is threatening we don't know what it is i don't know if i go out and walk for 10 minutes and i'm walking faster than usual and then my body feels like that is something wrong is something and it isn't as intellectual as i'm presenting but there is this sort of more basal mood related piece that says my body does not feel right i need to slow down and go sit down mm. way before we, i may actually need to Mm -hmm. Because what I'm experiencing, what our what our brain does is it it compares rate of change to know how things are going around us, and when the the it when they detects a change and the rate is outside of spec, it starts pulling the fire alarm, and it changes our mood and it changes our perception of what we're doing, and it keeps us from. I mean, when you said a ten minute walk, I, th I thought how enjoyable. Why does that have to be a problem? Mm -hmm. uh, going out and playing a sport sounds kind of like fun. But then I was thinking, yeah, but as I start to do that and my body stretches its performance envelope, I am going to get messages that something's wrong. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to have to figure out how to focus so that I can still preserve the adventure, the the play, the whatever, in the face of... of Parts of my body telling me, no, no, you have to slow up. There's something obviously wrong here. Mm -hmm. uh, that, that's an important point that we talk about injury versus discomfort. And that can occasionally be a difficult gray area, depending upon what you're doing. And so, Bill, you alluded to the fact I'm doing something big tomorrow. I'm doing a 30-plus mile hike slash run with my wife and three of our friends. And there is going to be discomfort during that. I hope that there will not be injury. And there, there quite possibly could be a time where I'm going and all of a sudden my ankle feels weird and it, it, it it's starting to act up. And I have to be really aware of, did I just strain it? Is it just a odd niggle that is going to work itself out as I just keep going? Uh, can I does, I, does somebody need to carry me out of here? What level is this at? And I have to be able to assess that appropriately so that I don't do more damage if it is on the injury spectrum. But I also don't just give up because it's a little achy. So let me suggest what you're talking about. Something that I really promote is we have to learn how to live in our bodies again. Because if, if you're really inhabiting your body, then you can make all those assessments. Okay, my ankle feels a little, mm, but it doesn't feel too bad. And what's going on with it? Oh, it's that stride. If I shorten my stride, well, that, you know. Again, you can make those assessments because you live in there. But if you don't, and many of us don't, many of us live a couple of feet away from our bodies, uh, then all that is just, you know, weird messages from a strange territory. And then we don't know what to do with it. And we typically label it as threatening or, or bad. So one of the steps here is to be able to actually inhabit your body 
And it, when you live in there, you can know the territory better. Mm -hmm. Good. <laughs> and somewhere in 30 miles, I guess you will probably really inhabit that body. Yep. <laughs> uh, it's typically the knees that uh, start to talk to me, but we'll see. Um, would you like to cover any other roles from a physical perspective? I think as a parent with a kid, I think there's importance there that what I hear, and I would even say I don't have kids, but even then branching out to grandparents. So I do see my parents with my nieces, and I know that given some of the health challenges they've had, they've gone from um, assuming that they would be there to take care of the grandkids forever to having a medical thing that caused them to say, wow, we might not be there and let's maximize how much we can do with these kids and how much we can interact with them and whatever it is they like to do, we want to be able to do it with them. And yeah. part of that is physical. Years ago, Bob Fraser was was sharing with me his 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 physical vision of the future. And I was so touched by it. You know, he said, I want to be able to play one-on-one -on -one basketball with my grandkids. Mm. Yeah. He didn't even have grandkids at that time. Right. Okay. His kids were just married. Yeah. Nobody knew about the grandkids. And, and again, that was his vision that, that, that formed a goal that led him. But the other thing that it's speaking to is he wanted to relate to the kids through something physical that he had always enjoyed all his life. Mm -hmm. And I, I think we can do that. It, it, kids want to be related physically as well as intellectually and emotionally. They want to play physically. Mm -hmm. It is also an important way of working out a relationship. If you look at animals like a wolf pack or whatever, the play among the pack is very physical, but it's also very social. It's how some things are decided, uh, how hierarchies are determined. I mean, there's a lot of, lot of action going on there that it looks like, well, they're just playing around. Well, humans, are we're not that much different. When we're playing a sport, when when we touch someone on the shoulder, um, when we shake somebody's hand, when we give someone a hug, I mean, these are all very important things for us as human beings and really convey a lot more than just the movement that we're talking about. Yeah, I'm going to tangent again. I got two stories for you. Uh, so <laughs> the first, I mean, and one is more recent. The other one's many, many years old. So the first one, uh, we got a dog. Uh, that was a, a um, rescue dog. He was about four years old when we got him. He's a pit bull. And we picked him up and he was pretty hyper. And uh, But he came from a family. It was a, a couple that had a kid. And he was great with the family. So we thought, well, let's give it a try. So we took him home. And he was fantastic. But he seemed to be kind of aggressive when he was on the leash. Well, the family told us that he was fine with other dogs. So we're like, wow, this is this just isn't adding up. Well, it turned out they had never, he didn't have a collar. They never had him on a collar or a leash. And so it, there's 
possibly something there that was weird for him that caused him to act out on a leash. Well, we had to take him to a uh, daycare, doggy daycare, when we would go on a trip. Well, they do a uh, a test run where you can drop your dog off for half a day and they see if the dog is okay in that environment. Well, this is a place where the dog is in like a crate for an hour or two. And then they have like an hour of playtime where all the dogs go together in a big open area. And then they go back in their crate and then back out to play. So they get this interaction. So we brought him there and said, hey, we're not sure how this is going to go. So we want you to just to be aware, be careful. He's not been the greatest on the leash. And so he might not be good in this open environment with 12 other dogs. So yeah, we're used to that. We'll take care of it. We're fine. Okay, great. So we picked him up three, four hours later, and they said, oh, he was great. He played, no problem. Like, oh, fantastic. So a week later, we had a trip planned. So we, a week later, dropped him off. We're all excited. At the end of that trip, we pick him up, and he's got like a cut on his forehead and a cut on his ear. We're like, oh, my gosh, did he like attack something? Did he attack another dog? They're like, oh, no, he just plays really rough. <laughs> he's like a bull in a china shop he runs around he runs into things he just plays rough i'm like oh okay i can relate to that that brings me to story yeah, yeah. yeah that brings me to story number two uh as a kid so my dad has nine brothers and three sisters and so growing up i had uncles that were they basically would have been like in college age or just out of when i was like in those um middle school years and younger. And I had multiple cousins that were my age. And so we would typically all get together once or twice a year. And when we would, it was some serious roughhousing play that we played hard until somebody cried, until somebody got hurt. And once that happened, we had to take a break. But that happened every single time. Somebody would like launch themselves off the couch and miss and, and then go crying to the parent or whatever it might be. So um, <laughs> just that's my story. Played rough. Well, well, and, you know, there's terrific learning there. One is that you learn to be in your body. Yes. The other is the other kids learn to be in theirs. And then all of you learn how to be physically with each other. Mm. And you could say, well, I played rough. Somebody got hurt. Well, that kind of getting hurt isn't the end of the world. That's that's kind of like we're learning how to work together physically and not get hurt. My guess is that over time, you know, it become became less and less likely that someone would get mm -hmm. hurt. It became because everybody got to be a lot more aware of how to move their bodies in space around these other bodies moving in space. Again, it's it's something that human beings, we need to know. Mm -hmm. And in knowing it and being in, in our body, there's a profound sense of empowerment that comes with that. And to not be in your body is terribly disempowering. Mm -hmm. and, and a certain amount of anxiety that I see in my practice is, well, you're not in your body and you don't know your strength and you don't know how to move your body around other people. And so you're constantly in this sort of vague gray zone in a 
socially gray zone around other people. And of course you feel lost and threatened and strange. I wonder mm-hmm. what would be different for you if, if you took a walk every day, if you started to run, if you lifted some weights, if you did some, you know, good old 19th century manual tasks with the other guys, can we all lift this boat? Let's we got about six of us. Can we do this? There is again, something fairly profound in the way we look at ourselves and the mm-hmm. way we look at the world when we're able to do the physical stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you know, the funny thing was you were saying that another <laughs> topic that it's not on our list. I think it falls partly into the physical realm that we, I don't think we're going to cover a whole lot of here, uh, is sexual health. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a whole nother area where there's a large physical component to that as well as emotional. And so that piece though also is something that is hard to get comfortable with. I'm not an expert by any means on that topic. I've read a couple books related to that, that talk about the importance of getting comfortable with our, our, the sexual side of our physical self and how impactful that can be on a um, quote unquote happy and fulfilling life. Um, so and in, a, and in a society that is so looks driven as yeah. ours, it's a huge threat to self-esteem to be able to take your clothes off with somebody. Yeah. Because we all compare ourselves. Remember that part of self-esteem is comparative. So we're comparing ourselves to supermodels. Mm hmm. You know, and and we're going like, well, we don't look like that, you know. Uh, so yeah, that's a that's a big piece. The other piece, uh, since I work with couples, and some of that is sexual, uh, is there's this idea that oh, you know, you get to a certain age, you're just not that interested in sex anymore, which is ridiculous. Neurologically, it's 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 not the same, but it's not, you know. And I say, no, your problem is your cardiovascular health is so bad Mm -hmm. that you can't actually, you know, be that involved physically for that long. Mm -hmm. And you're pulling the plug on things and you're starting to shy away from things that you already know you can't do or can't fulfill. It's it's about your basic health, not your sexual health. Mm hmm got to have basic health as a foundation for sexual health and you know if you're winded and you can't get your blood uh your your heart rate up without feeling like it's going to explode now yeah sex is going to be a little hard there Mm -hmm. yeah i feel like that could be a whole nother topic um and probably we'll get edited out yeah um (laughs) that's okay but I think there is value in that, and I, I have no problem covering that at some point. I think uh, having another episode that's sip, sip strictly about that could be beneficial, and it seems to be happening more often now in some of the different podcast realms and books and things like that, that there's good information coming out about people becoming more comfortable with themselves and with their partners. So um what parting thoughts do we want to have for people and what do we think they should actually do? So I have something I like sharing with people that I I can end on. That is, it comes from an old book 
by a guy named Frank Ferenczyk. And he wrote a book called The Exuberant Animal. And it's about humans. And he says uh, he has a recommendation for um, how to achieve health and exuberance. And it's uh, seven items. So vigorous physical activity, real food and water, outdoor exposure. We actually didn't talk about that in the physical part, but outdoor exposure is big for a number of areas. Quality sleep and rest, positive social experience, play and good humor, and meaningful engagement with the world. Delightful. Yes. I think he, what I'll add as, as, an, as an ending piece is if you see improving your physical health as, as a dreadful series of tasks and self-denial, I'm going to go make myself exercise. I have to um, prevent myself from eating what I want to eat. You're relatively doomed. And even if you, and if you achieve it, I, I, I kind of wonder it. I mean, why would you hurt yourself that bad? I challenge people to, is there a way to think about and to restructure your view of that 10 minute walk? It's not something you have to do, but something you get to do. Or that, that going for a run or doing something more physical or hiking on a weekend in a natural area is not as something that's, you know, threatening or I'm only doing it so like I'm, I feel physically better. Deep inside you as a human being, there's there's a, this wonderful animal part of you that wants to go out there and wants to eat good food and wants to do these things. And part of the problem here is that we've lost touch with that, but it's still in there. So one of the pieces I do, you know, for physical self-care, find the part of you that wants that. Mm -hmm. Don't don't try to beat yourself up to, to force yourself to do it. Where's the part of you that wants that? Thank you. Thanks for listening to our episode on physical self-care. And stay tuned for our next episode as we cycle through our five self-care topics. As always, reach out at inspiropodcast at gmail.com for comments and questions. And don't forget to tell your friends to listen in. Thanks. Thanks.